interview that I have with Jason Coppins that will follow this quick intro. Jason talks about his foray into vet med, and he mentions working with a practice that he helped triple revenue in three to four months. We all hopefully know that tripling revenue in three to four months would be almost impossible. And Jason, after we recorded, went back in his mind and was like, oh yeah, it was revenue growth, which albeit is extremely impressive to be able to give someone the trajectory to grow as fast as Jason was able to do. I just wanted to make sure that was clear. Jason also wanted to make sure that was clear. And instead of redoing and re-recording that section, I just wanted to put this at the front of the episode. So when he talks about tripling revenue in three to four months, it's actually revenue growth. So just wanted to be clear with that being the case, please enjoy this interview with Jason Coppins. Welcome to the Veteran Success Podcast. My name is Isaiah Douglas. Today I'm joined by Jason Coppins, president of Coppins Business Strategies. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So Jason, you have a lot of experience in the business world talking about strategy and teams and, and building a, a structure around them. That wasn't always the case of working within the, the veterinarian industry. Can you share kind of how the niche developed and then really what you did and what the journey has been to lead you to this point in the business that you have today? Sure. So I started out in the IT industry of all places, and I got a, a job in a company back in 2000 that was a, a growing company. They had around 45 employees, and they were doing about $2.5 in revenue every year, but they were a great company, and they knew that they wanted to grow. They had great leadership in place, and over the 15 years I was with them, we took it from that small size, and we grew it up to um, somewhere in the neighborhood of around $70 million with around 300 employees, and that was amazing growth. So we got to go through all the stages of a small business that didn't have any processes in place. They were just trying to figure out how to even build good teams all the way through making that just a core of who we are, building great teams and having to build and maintain those great teams as we added person after person after person and then put the processes in place to make sure that we could scale and do this forever into the future. And that was a master class on a lot of leadership and business and strategy and team building. And we got to the end of that and, and the company got sold and it was just a really good experience. And I got out of it and my wife, as it was, was in the veterinarian field. She's a veterinarian herself. And I had a little bit of time as I was interviewing at some nonprofits, which is where I was initially heading after that. And uh, I just volunteered to come in to her clinic, um, talk to her owner and said, you know, I have some skills in, in the business side. If you don't mind, let me look at your business and see if I can give you any helps or tips or pointers, just kind of as a thank you, because you've always been great to my wife. So we did that at the end of the month. I kind of analyzed your business, came back, gave her a full presentation. These are the areas I would I would change or adjust. It's where we should focus, in my opinion. And she said, this is great. Uh, can you come in and help us implement all the things you have here? I go, okay, sure. So I kept interviewing uh, for the nonprofit space. And uh, as I was doing that, we worked with her clinic and it just started growing. So we tripled her revenue uh, in the first three or four months from where we were. Our pace would just start picking up and moving forward. And she referred me over to a friend who was also a veterinarian. So I went out and did some work with him who referred me over to another person. And about six or so odd months into this, I, I started having two or three clients. And I loved working with these guys because it was kind of like going back to the very beginning of my previous company where... They, they had a lot of opportunity to put some more processes in place and put a lot of the structure there in order to build the great teams and really help their clinics advance, grow forward. And I love that stage of business. And so I really enjoyed working with them. They were getting some benefits out of that across their, in, uh, across their clinics. And, and it just snowballed. 
and there was three and four. And eventually I said, I love this so much. I can do the nonprofit stuff on the side. Let me just get in there and see if I can help these guys because they know the medicine side. I have a lot of experience in the business and team building side. Let me see if I can just help augment what they're already doing and help them become better. And I built a company off of that at this point. It's been three and a half years. We have four people on staff besides myself, and we're working with clinics across the U.S. at this point. And it's just been an amazing ride, and I've met a lot of great people and just working to help them out with whatever we can. Yeah, I can imagine you being a pretty popular person if you can 3x revenue after working with somebody. That would make that would make someone pretty popular. So that's fantastic. And I know those that are listening are going to be probably a little curious about the clinic itself. Can you share kind of what style of veterinary medicine your wife worked in? Is there anything that you typically gravitate towards or you cross the, the spectrum as far as who you help? So what we look for is usually work with companion animal. I know there's a lot of people who get into large animal. I haven't really got into that space and that's not one I'm, I'm overly aggressively looking into. But the standard companion animal is where I found pretty good home for myself, I should say. We've done a lot with actually cat-only clinics as well. There's just been a niche there that has been interesting to develop. But traditionally, we're in that space, the companion animal. Makes sense. And I just wanted to, to clarify that for those that are listening. And yeah, companion animal is is typically you know the most prevalent across the industry. So what do you think, um, you talked about processes and teams, what makes a, a great team? Where do you see some of the challenges within a, a clinic that you know the team maybe isn't quite aligned? How are you able to help make a great team? There's a lot that goes into that. And this is one of the areas that, at least in my opinion, is harder for a lot of the leaders I meet. And so it starts really at the hiring process, in my opinion. Right off the bat, you need to hire the right people that are going to make your team better. And it's not just a skill set thing. In fact, as I look at building great teams, I'm going to assume either that they're going to have some of the skills or we can teach some of the skills. But one of the most important things I'm going to look at is the attitude and the culture fit, because those are the areas that can really sink a team overall. So the first thing we're looking at hiring is, do we have the right person? And then do they either have the skill set or can we teach the skill set? But do we have that person? Once they get on, people need to know how to really succeed in their job. And so training is a huge component. I think that there's a lot of opportunity there to really understand for all the areas that we require our staff to do for their different positions, what areas are they good at? What areas are they okay at? And what can we train them on or get them better at? And then from there, we really need to get in there and coach and help these people out. So if you look at an employee, a lot of places I work with, they'll hire somebody, great, we have a body, we need to get going. So just go do your side, we'll, I'll do our side, and we'll just kind of move forward. But I think there's so much more that you can do to build a great team if you really focus on helping that person and coaching them. Even if you come around every three months and sit down with an employee and, and ask them some questions about how they think things are going, give them a couple of things that they're doing that's really good. Give them a couple of things that they're doing that you think they should work on. Even minimal coaching like that, I think, builds a little more buy-in to that team. It really helps people out. And a lot of people just give feedback when they're mad at somebody because they didn't do something correctly. And I get that. And you have to do some corrective action there too. But you also have to praise them for all the things they're doing right and really show them what success looks like and how they can be successful and then praise them when they are successful in things. They need to feel part of the team that they can contribute. Other things I'd throw in with that um, as I look through that concept and, and really think about what people do and don't do is there's a huge aversion to having hard conversations. 
if you have that person that's not a good culture fit or has a bad attitude or is a little bit more combative either with clients or with other staff members, <clears throat> a lot of the leaders I meet, either practice managers or the owners, have a hard time sitting down and having those conversations to correct that action. And so that kind of negative or sometimes toxic behavior just continues and continues and permeates sometimes through the group. And those are things you got to nip in the bud as quickly as possible. And then with all that, a lot of the veterinarians are very nice people. They're very kind-hearted. They're very compassionate. And so the hard conversations are hard, but then also having to say goodbye to people sometimes is hard. And some people are not good fits. And you think they are, and they, or maybe they were at one point, but sometimes you outgrow them. You have to be able to walk people very compassionately through that. But you have to be able to say goodbye to them when you need to. And there's a whole bunch of things to make sure you have the right people on your team, make sure they're in the right seats, that there are places where they can succeed, give them the feedback about how they can be better and develop them as people and kind of build the team out that way. In a nutshell, that's a quick overview of it all. Does that help? Absolutely. And yeah, there's there's a, a ton more that I know, Jason, you could go into and, and really dive in into more detail. And as much as I love long format podcasts, we could we could spend the whole time just chatting on that because there's so many things that you brought up from the idea of if the leader, that veterinarian owner is very compassionate and maybe doesn't like the hard conversations. And there's someone that maybe is a little bit more of a domineering personality. They just tend to avoid that. Like, Ooh, we just don't want to deal with that. Hopefully it gets better. And hope is usually a poor strategy. And if someone on the, the front front line that is dealing with clients a lot is really negative, you're going to end up driving a lot of the, the best people within that clinic out because if it never gets addressed, you're going to lose some of the really good people and be left with those that are willing to put up with, let's say, the the negative Nancy or the negative person that's out there that is maybe a little bit of a poison to the culture of that organization. You are a VSG facilitator and there are a lot of practices around the United States. Not everyone's involved in, in VSG. What are you seeing from some of those practices that maybe sets them apart from a business or strategy or culture perspective. And what is, what are the things that others can say, we need to replicate that style of how they're operating to, to maybe grow and be more successful, whatever success means. It doesn't always mean revenue. It can mean a lot of different things. I agree. So there are great clinics, obviously they're outside the VSG group as well. Some of the common things that happens within the VMG groups and the VSG groups I think is a kind of a powerful thing to replicate is they are focused on working on their business. And so a lot of different clinics I see, the owners are doctors obviously as well. And so they spend a lot of their time working in the clinics. They're, they are the doctor. They're seeing patients, they're working on that, and they're putting out fires all the time. And so they spend so much time working in the business that they usually don't have an opportunity or don't take a lot of extra time to take a step out from it and work on the business. And so VSG really helps to facilitate that, in my opinion. They're really good at providing a lot of key numbers so you can understand how your business is performing, what areas are doing well, what areas are doing poorly. And I think that looking at numbers on a monthly basis is a key thing that I don't see a lot of clinics doing. You need to know if you're winning or losing, and then you have to keep score in order to make that possible. And so different metrics, and I like looking at things off the P&L, I like looking at patient appointment information and some of the key initiatives going on. And again, we could talk about that in detail too. But I think that numbers component is a big one. 
the other thing is there's a lot of camaraderie with that. The VMG groups as they're assembled are usually 18 to 20 clinics that are all similar in focus. And so they meet twice a year and talk about what's going on in their clinics. So they're getting a lot of outside perspectives from people who are in a lot of the same fights that they are. I think that that piece of it also adds into it as well. It's, it's hard to do a lot of this on your own. And it, it's good to get some outside vendors' perspectives as well. But I also think it's good to talk to other clinic owners and just start seeing what's what are best practices. Because every clinic is going to be good at different things. And they're going to be having some struggles with different things. And if you can really kind of get in there and understand what other people are doing great, that gives you some opportunities to replicate it back home. Or even just to have two or three people that you trust who are in the industry that you can bounce ideas off of that won't just tell you you're great at everything, but also challenge you sometimes and, and kind of push you to be better. I think that that piece of it's also a core thing that the BMG groups have that are not always inherently there for independent clinics. Yeah, I think the camaraderie, um, I, I view my business um, being an independent business owner and having study groups and having other uh, advisors that I talk to. And they are in various different niches and serve a completely different population, but they're doing certain things or they come across issues and challenges. And as we're able to talk through those, sometimes it, it, it's like a light bulb moment for me that maybe is completely not related to what I'm trying to do with the various people that I work with, but I can bring those ideas back and implement something different to better serve somebody. And that's the, the power of community is really, really important. But um, you did mention kind of KPIs, which is key performance indicators. I've been asked a couple times from from different veterinarians, like, what do I need to know? And I want to dive into that a little bit more since you cracked the door. I'm going to kick it wide open. Let's chat about some of your preferred KPIs, things that, you know, on a monthly basis we should be looking at and how how you can help guide you know, the ship a little bit. Cause like you mentioned, if you aren't checking your numbers and it's, Hey, once a year, we're going to check on something. You can't, you can't make any sort of course correction. Like what, what can someone be doing to, to continue to make sure they're driving forward? So I'm going to focus on the three areas I mentioned before. Let's start with the PNL. So obviously the, the revenue and the profit is a key thing you have to be aware of as an owner. And there's six measures I'm going to look at in the PNL across the board in every clinic. The first one is your revenues, obviously. We need to see that. And the way I like to lay that out for all these measures is I like to lay it out monthly with a year-over-year format. So right now we're in the middle of the year, so I'm going to look at all of last year and this year by month. And that allows me to see kind of year-over-year trends, month-over-month trends, and some seasonality stuff as well. So if I know, you know, I know instinctively I'm going into a light season, but I can also see are we lighter this year than we were last year? Are we above goal right now or you know, just because I had a busy week last week, are we really busy or is it just that week? And that that feeling helps me get that kind of a flesh through when I can see the numbers in front of me for that period of time. So we're going to look at revenue. Next thing we're going to look at is five areas that I call the 520s. So cost of goods. I want to have that around 20% of my revenue. And, was, and that's all the, the standard cost of goods. Some people at different P&Ls will put different things in and out of it, but I'm talking about the true cost of doing business, these are our supplies and the other things that go into actually performing the services. It's not the staff, not the, any of the other expenses like building expenses or rent. These are the core cost of goods. I look for that to be around 20% of my revenue. The next two I want to talk about is the, the expense for the DVMs and the expense for the staff. When I put these together, usually I look at for a staff expense, 
um, not including payroll taxes, just a staff expense of around uh, 20 to 22%. I'm going to marry that with a DVM expense of around 18 to 20%. The combination of the two should get you to around 40%. These are all percentages of revenue. If I put on payroll taxes above that, it hits me to around 45 or so. But as I look at that, those two 20s together, and, and usually staff expense is a little higher and DVM expense is a little lower. But we're going to try to get to around 40 with that. And staff expense is a big one that people are usually a little bit out of range on. I see a lot of clinics that are 25, 28, 30% sometimes. And that's an opportunity to kind of make that a little bit tighter and more efficient. And usually if you get down to quote-unquote ideal levels, you're looking at around 18, 19% for the staff and about 3 to 4% for the management on the staff side. The next one down is all the other expenses. So once we take out the cost of goods, we take out the um, staff expense and the DVM expense for their salaries, what we're left with, the rent, the utilities, all those other things, I look to have around that 20% level as well. Twenty, And this one, again, sometimes gets up around 25 or so. If all those line up, our revenues are at the top, and then we have our cost of goods, our two staff expenses, and our expenses, they're all around 20%. That leaves us about 20% for our net profit. If I'm looking at a well-run clinic, I like to see them in the mid to upper teens. I get concerned when they get down to the single digits, but that mid to upper teens is a good place to go. Again, a lot of clinics I'll see will start out maybe five, 8%. We're going to want to get that growing up. And those other areas we talked about are how we're going to do it. We got to get the revenues solid and growing, but then we have to make sure that all of our expenses are in line. And those are the ways that break out the PL. We'll go on to the next area in just a second. you have any thoughts or questions about that you want to throw in? No, that's extremely helpful. And um, I just was thinking as you're going through that, the idea of, and this was a, a biz equity, um, which is a, a valuation business. They talked about the average profit margin for businesses in the United States, which is everything is around 10%. And part of the reason I view so much interest from the outside is what you just talked about. If you can have a profit margin mid-teens into the 20s, higher 20s, and I know some of the um, like VMG, VSG practices can be higher than that at times. That's why there's so much outside capital and outside money wanting to come into the space. If a practice is run efficiently, it's a very profitable business model. And I try to instill that and explain that to especially younger veterinarians that maybe aren't sure if they want to be an owner. And if it even makes sense, I try to explain like their path to success in the future. If they want to be an owner, it's a very wise decision where they can make quite a bit on the, the money that they would be investing in back into that business if you're looking at a you know a 20% profit margin. So no, I really appreciate that. That's a great breakdown. Let's keep moving forward. So the next section I, I would encourage people to look at is the one that they usually don't look at as much, which is the patient and appointment side. And the PL you have to look at because that's your finances, but those are all lagging indicators. Those are all results. That happens after the fact. What drives those results are some of the key things you need to look at. And for a clinic it's patients and appointments. So with that, there's four key graphs I will look at every time that are kind of the core of the business and will tell me immediately if a business is doing well or not. And there's some additional ones we'll talk about on top of it. Four key ones, and the number one one I will always look at is something called annual active patients. And there, depending on who you talk to in the industry, there's different versions of this. Sometimes people look at it 18 months or 24 months or 36 months. I look at it as a year. And the question that that graph answers is how many unique patients have you seen in the last 12 months? 
The reason why I picked 12 months versus 18 or 36 is because I've never met a vet who didn't want to see every patient they had every year. At least want them to come in for an annual for vaccines or just routine checkups and stuff like that. So instead of saying that we're going to keep them as active until they're two years or three years, I want to focus on getting them in as much as I want them there. And I want them there at least once a year. So we're going to put that marker or that line in the sand at 12 months. And so I look at a graph that for every month, it shows me how many unique patients I've seen over the last 12. And that needs to be growing. Because in the end, there's three ways to grow a clinic. You either increase the number of people you see every year, you increase the amount of times you see them every year, or you increase the amount they spend when they come in each time. That's the three. It's that simple. So in the end, raising how much they pay every time they come in, that has a ceiling. You won't get people to pay two or $3,000 a visit traditionally. So there is a point where that will top out. How many times you see them, again, for a lot of, a lot of the cases, is going to come down to, you know, are the pets getting sick or whatever else. You're not going to see them five, eight times for every single patient. So there's a cap on that to a degree as well. So the key way to grow a business on the patient side is to just increase the number of patients, unique patients you see on an annual basis. So if I look at that graph and that graph is going down or staying level, then I know that that clinic is not going to be growing very much or maybe even declining with where they're at. And that's a number that most of the clinics I talk to don't know. So let's talk about the three other graphs that go with it. And I think they're the, the ones that actually make that one move back and forth, so up and down. First one is dormant patients. Now, this is going to be defined as number of patients who just fell off the cart, so to speak. They're one, they just hit their 13 months, and we didn't see them. And I like to track that every month, too. So every month, we have we had these wonderful patients we saw over the last 12, and as we move to the next month, there's going to be a group of them that were on that 12th month that never came back in, so they're falling off the back of the annual continuum of care that we built, and they're going dormant as I determine it. So these are the ones that we need to have a solid process in place to be reaching out to. We have reminders that are traditionally there, but I also like to mix in there things like phone calls from the receptionist if they have some time. And if I haven't heard from them in maybe 13, 14, 16 months, I'm going to also give them a letter from the clinic too. I like to mix up the ways I communicate between reminders and postcards, between emails or texts, between phone calls, between written letters. But I have a defined policy of how I'm going to approach these people that are falling off their annual continuum of care because for those first you know, six months or so, it's probably my best chance to get them back in. And traditionally, if I, if I have people calling in that 13th month saying, hey, you just missed your annual, we'd like to get you know, fluffier recs in to really get them on top of things, make sure they're up to date on their vaccines and we're catching problems while they're still small, I can usually get 10 to 20% of them back right there. Come to that 18 month mark, if I'm sending out a letter at that point, you know, it's been about a year and a half since we last saw you, usually there's about a 5% return on that, which is pretty standard for mailers as well. So the, just in the example alone, the best chance to get them to come back is right after they missed it. You want to continue to build that habit of every year we want to see your pet. We want to make sure that they're doing well. We want to catch problems while they're small. We want to keep them up to date in vaccines and all those things. So that dormant patient is really important because that's the thing that's dragging our overall annual of patients down. The next one we'll look at is the returning dormant patients. These are the ones who had fallen off or fallen off the back of the wagon that just came back in this month for the first time ever. Maybe we haven't seen them in 13 months. Maybe we haven't seen them in five years, but they came back in. And I want to make sure I am managing that number because it's 
our hopefully our dormant patients are staying level to going down as we're growing our clinic. And hopefully our returning dormant patients are going up as we're growing our clinic. We want to get more and more of them back. And there's usually a ratio that's pretty natural there, which is about one to three. So if I look at any clinic and they have 90 patients going dormant a month on average, traditionally I will see 30 patients coming back. And that's just a general ratio that exists out there. Obviously, I want to have that ratio closer. If I can get it closer to 50%, that's even better. And managing that's a key thing because that's basically the clients you already have and trying to keep them engaged in your clinic. And I'd rather always keep the clients I have than try to always get new ones. It's a little easier. So if we're talking about that and we use the example, let's assume that the ratio is in place. And so we have 90 patients that are going dormant a month and we have 30 that are coming in that are returning out of that fold. That leaves us 60 that we're going to be losing every month. And so we need to make up for that. And the only way to do that is new patients. And when we look at new patients, let me define it in two different ways. New patients, a lot of people focus on new clients. And new clients are a really important place to focus. But you also will get new patients from your existing client base. So when I look at it, I put both of them together. And I've, I have strategies involved for trying to attract or get both of those types of patients into the clinic. For existing clients, I like to know what other pets are at home. And that's some of the protocols we build into our room flow with different clinics is to make sure we understand what's the rest of our uh, pet family look like. And are we giving care to all of them or just one of them? And if we are only doing one, we should probably talk about the other ones as well. It's also good from a veterinarian side to understand whether animals are in the house and what dynamics that might create when we're looking to treat the animal that's in that day. So the other side is the new clients. And again, there's a mixture of things that go into attracting new clients. And that's always a, a big area that people are interested in. And a couple of things I'll say about that. With going after new clients, there's three reasons I, that are pretty common that people look to come to a new place. Either they're, the, they're new to the area and they have to find a vet for the first time. They just got a new pet and so they have to find a vet for it. Or they're unhappy with the vet they have and they have to change. Those are the core three. And each one of those I might approach a little differently with a marketing strategy. The other side of it is when actually reaching out and trying to get in front of different people who might be interested in your clinic, that outreach piece, a blended approach is absolutely required. Referrals are a big one. People driving by and seeing your physical clinic is a big one that gets people in. Internet marketing is a big one. Having websites, having some degree of Google AdWords or an outreach on that side. Those are all three big common ones. But there's a host of other ones as well. And you don't just want to do one. You want to do five or ten different ways to reach out to clients consistently to be able to identify and find them in, through different channels. And again, these are things that you want to have running all the time. And you want to have time over you know, two or three years to perfect and really get down and understand what resonates with the clients that you're reaching out to in your area. Because one size doesn't always fit all. I can give you the three general areas to look at, but your marketing message that's going out through your Google AdWords might be completely different if you're in Scottsdale, Arizona, than if you're in Denver, Colorado. And you need to kind of put that all together. But coming back to the graph side of it, that new client or new patient side has got to be two-thirds of your dormant patients or more just to kind of break even. And you've got to work on that. You have to understand that ratio because I've seen a lot of places that get busy, they get a rush of new patients and they don't see it, but they've been flat as far as their annual occupations for six months. Their, their revenues are great this year. 
because all last year they had on a whole bunch of new patients. And so they're, they're servicing them and it's going well, but they don't know that that whole area is softened up. And so where they're easily getting 10%, 15% growth this year, next year, they're going to be flat, maybe even a little bit down because they won't be able to keep up with it because they don't have that core engine running well anymore. And they don't see it. So those are the four that kind of go together. The main one being the annual active patients, but then those other three, the new dormant patients, the returning dormant patients, and the new patients being the ones that kind of move that number up and down. So I look at those for sure. The other little peripheral ones, I love to look at forward booking. I think that's an area that most of the clinics I, I work with could always have an opportunity to do better at. A lot of them talk about or have it there, but they're not doing as good of a job as they could with it. And for booking to define that, and the way I like to do it, is every client who walks in the door for an appointment should walk out the door with an appointment. It seems straightforward, but a lot of people focus on wellness. And a lot of the appointments they look at are just the outpatient appointments where you're talking about coming into a room and having the doctor see you and then recommending the next annual visit. And it's more than that. You see clients for a lot of different reasons. You see them for surgeries. You see them for boarding. You see them for tech appointments. And any one of those appointments could be the last one they have in the books with you. And so when you look at a forward booking strategy, you need to have it across the board for every appointment type you have. You have to understand how to do that. And then you have to have a receptionist who understand that if someone calls in for a recheck and cancels it or a wellness and has to cancel it, we just lost a touch point with that client. And we need to get that back. So turning cancellations into reschedules are an important thing for the CSRs to understand and understand that if you have a pet that was coming back in for an illness and all of a sudden the pet's gotten greater, uh, gotten better at home, that means that when they call in to cancel that, you don't just say, great, I'm glad Fluffy's doing much better. Let's uh, keep going. I'll talk to you later. You say, great, I'm glad to hear Fluffy's doing better. That means that all we need to do now is just schedule the next annual to keep up on the vaccines and make sure that he keeps doing well. And some of those different wordings and those approaches, that, that core process of making sure we don't ever lose a next touch point with the client is a huge part that would help clinics grow. And as I look at that, most of the clinics, when I look at all their appointment types and I put them all together and say, how many people walk in the door for an appointment of any type and walk out the door with another appointment, usually they're starting off between 10 and 20%, which is a really low number. Once you put the process in place and focus on this, it's not hard to double that number right off the bat. But the number doesn't ever go up to 100%. A lot of times, the initial goal is, let's just make sure we have all the process in place and that we're asking 100% of the time. And that naturally starts to grow it. As you get better at it, you understand the objections that people are going to come up with, like, I don't know my schedule that far out or different things like that. And you understand what your clinic has to offer to combat that or help them work around that so they can get their pet in. Even if they don't know their schedule, you're out, then you can move that number up further and further. I've seen it get as high as 60%, but that still sounds low, especially when dentists are out there getting 90%. But just to say, when you start off and you're at the 10 to 15% range, or even higher in the 18 to 19% range, there is so much opportunity there to just build a really solid forward booking process. And that's not only good for your business, that's amazing for the pets. You want to see these guys back, not when there's problems and they're half dead or they're having some issues because an orange just noticed it. You want to get them back for routine care and checkups and everything else to make sure you can keep on top of them and provide the best medical care possible.
So that one's a big one I also like to look at because I think there's a lot of opportunities with most clinics to do better in that area. There's other ones in there. I like to see the cancel and no-show rate. I think that's important. I like to see that in 8 to 10% range, and it concerns me when that gets higher. I want to make sure that we have the right amount of our of communications coming out for our appointment confirmation process. And if we don't have that right or we're, we're not emailing or texting in the right ways or calling at the right times, sometimes our cancel no-show rate's higher just because we need to tweak that. That one I like to look at. I like to look at number of visits per year per patient on average. I like to see that, you know, in the two to three range. It concerns me when we're seeing patients once a year on average, especially with all the other services we offer. I like to see the revenue per patient visit. I think that's a key one. Because if you put that the annual active patients, revenue per patient visit, and the visits per year per patient together, those are the three growth levers. I need to understand all three of those. So they come in there as well. And again, each one of these, there's different ways you can move them and adjust them to get value out of them. And it's kind of important not just to look at numbers, but then to take it through the next steps. So it's important to know what happened first, but then figure out why it happened. See if you can kind of expect or predict what's going to happen next. And then most importantly, figure out what you're going to be able to do about it. Metrics shouldn't just be something you look at, glance, go, okay, move on. They should be things that drive action. If they don't drive action, they're probably not the best ones to look at. There's two areas. For anyone that's driving, that uh, was a lot of information. I would encourage you, you know, get home, re-listen to this, sit down with a, a pen and paper and take some notes because, Jason, that was fantastic from just the amount of information that you, you shared and broke down. It was clear. Um, I think the way that you summarized everything is it's great to look at these metrics and they really don't mean anything unless there's action taken. And that's the, that's the key thing. You can look at trends, you can see what's going on, but just knowing is half the battle. There's a lot of, I mean, this is applicable anywhere. You, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't <laughs> take action and make some changes, it's going to be the exact same result. The information, while incredible, and to think about how to run that business efficiently um, it's, it's how do you take steps next? And there's so many different kind of avenues to go off of, of that conversation. One question that I have, I talked to Dr. Jess Trimble early on, and I've had conversations with others. What's your thoughts from a, a strategy of telemedicine or where do you see that at? Do you have an opinion there? Or is that just something that you're not really talking with clients yet? Just out of curiosity. That's right. now. that's on the cusp of a lot of things. And it's interesting to look at coming out of an IT industry where we were always trying to get leading edge with technology into the vet industry where technology is not always something that people are trying to get ahead on. We have a lot of things that are coming out in the space right now that people are either having to deal with or are curious about. And telemedicine is definitely one of them. I, th I think that right now, from what I've seen, a lot of clinics are either just starting to think about it or trying to figure out what that would mean for them down the road. But I haven't seen a lot of clinics that have embraced it and been doing it for a year or two at this point. So it's one of those things that's right on the cusp, I think. And with all these technologies, whether you're talking about the online stores or the apps that we can use to integrate with our clients and talk better or telemedicine, these are all things that are coming. And I think we need to understand them and understand how to leverage them effectively in our business because I think it's going to become things that either some of the corporate groups are going to be starting to do more and more often, and there's a lot out there like that already, or there are things that would benefit our patient care or client relationship pieces that we should look at. But 
with any of those types of things, I think it's most important to figure out how it's going to make your business better versus just trying to do it because it's there. And I think that a lot of people say, well, everyone else has got an app, so I have to have an app. Everyone else is doing telemedicine, so I have to do telemedicine or something to that effect. And you have to know what your clinic is about, where it's going and what it stands for, and then say, how does telemedicine help us realize that vision better? And that's the piece I think people really need to understand before they take huge steps with it. Absolutely. And it's the shiny odd object syndrome of, ooh, that looks really cool. That'd be fun. Let's do it. And then it's like, well, okay, we've done it for a little bit. Maybe everyone hasn't embraced it. We don't have any sort of process to implement it. We don't really know what we're doing with it. And then we don't use it anymore. And so we rolled this out, or maybe we didn't actually roll it out very well and, and tell you know, the client base. And then now it's something that's not even used. So it is kind of a failed project. Um, you talked about corporate and some of the things that they're doing leads into a question. You know, your focus is really on private practice. How can someone leverage their independence best in your opinion? Is there anything that really can help them set themselves apart and, and show that they're different? And how would you suggest going about doing that? This is always an interesting one, especially as you look at the the corporate landscape and the fact that corporations are potentially going to be taking up a larger and larger chunk every year of veterinary practices. And now you have a lot of other ones coming in. Uh, I believe Walmart's run off like a hundred different vet stores throughout a lot of their facilities. I think that their, their product is a vet IQ or something to that effect. But either way, vet clinics are going to have to deal with the fact that corporations love the vet industry and are here to become a bigger part of it. So how do we work in that? And, and how do we succeed there? So one of the things I can say is, as an independent shop, one of the cool things for not only the local community and your client base, but also for you and your staff, is you're all there and you're in it together. I love that piece of it. So if I'm going to be leveraging something initially, we're not doing this for corporate profits or to kick this up the chain to a different place. We're doing this as a team. And so... Internally speaking, with everything we're doing, all the decision makers, all the people that are at the table are there in that clinic every day. We have a lot of say in everything that happens, and the staff has a lot of say in it as well. And I know a lot of these corporations are good places, and they will leave a lot of the veterinary clinics to run themselves in a lot of, as long as they're doing well. But I think there's a lot of power that can come into, we can make all the decisions we need to. We can work together. We can, we can make choices even if they might seem like a short-term financially bad choice, but we know it's the long-term right, right decision or to move our clinic in the right direction. We can do those types of things. So we have a lot of the autonomy to make decisions down at the local level with local people who understand what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. And that I like. I'm not answering to somebody. And if, if I want a staff expense that's a little bit higher because I want that extra customer service piece, and I want to make sure that we can take a little longer in the room and we can do a little bit more here and there. I can offer that because no one who's looking at the numbers in a different state is saying, hey, you got to keep this at 18%. So I can leverage that to really hopefully fulfill the mission or vision of my clinic and, and make it more successful in that sense of it. Not just a financial sense, but also in the patient care sense, in the client service sense. And it, but it does require a really clear vision for what that needs to look like. If you're just going in every day and, and looking at a couple of patients and saying hi to a couple of clients, I think you're missing an opportunity to really define how you're going to provide your level of care to these patients and how you're going to deliver your level of service to these clients. And 
if you really focus on that and understand that, I think you can drive that and you can do that without any hindrance or any pushback potentially from a corporate side. Also, I think that there is a lot of, there's a lot of resonance with local communities related to that as well. They like knowing the community that's homegrown. There is still something to that local presence. It's not all about price, although price is always important. There is something to be said for, you know, this is my family bet off the road. We go out to them with lunch. We know these people. They're involved in our community. They're a local group here, and they're out there. And so the community outreach piece, you can do a lot of things, for example, going out to sponsor 5K walks or be out there in the community or giving talks at pet stores or other stuff like that that you can actually integrate into the community that might not be as favorable uh, from a corporate perspective sometimes. And I think that giving that homegrown feel and tailoring that customer service piece to them and being able to deliver the medicine, the customer service feel you want, making decisions on the ground, gives you a little bit of leverage over the corporate side. Yeah, I totally agree and uh, have spoken about it in my own voice uh, of what I see. But I know that, you know, from your vantage point and perspective, you know, people need to hear that again and again from, from various different voices. Also, with the amount of connections and clients and people within the industry that you've you've seen, We've talked a lot about some trends or different things in the industry. What do you think from a longer term outlook? Where, where do you see veterinary medicine moving into the future and, and how can someone prepare themselves, not only you know understanding their KPIs and success for today, but setting themselves up for success in the future? As we look at the space over the next 10 years or so, there's probably three areas I'd focus on with it. And the first one we talked about a little bit, which was the corporate consolidation piece. And with that, we're going to have corporations come in in different ways, either with the low cost clinics or just and corporations expanding across the board that we're going to need to be able to differentiate ourselves from and be able to compete with. And so we need to understand how our clinic can be positioned and how we're going to be able to offer a compelling product if the person up the road is potentially cheaper or the person up the road offers different types of services. We really need to understand how we can survive in that niche and thrive in it and really deliver a very specific product to our clients. I think that understanding and watching that evolution on the corporate side is very important. Second one I'd say is the technology piece. And we talked about this as well a little bit. There's a lot of technology coming down the pipes. A lot of the different practice management softwares are going onto the cloud at this point. They're getting away from the locally installed applications. And that brings in some interesting pieces of it. There's an explosion on the online side between things that are there for veterinarians, the different applications that can integrate into your practice management software for reminders or other things like that that can really make a lot of efficiencies and help you move your business forward. There's KPIs and other things that are coming in aggressively in that online space that are gonna help out. There's other concepts like telemedicine, but there's also the negative side of that there's a lot of online industries like Chewy that are gonna be competition for you. And I don't think, I don't think they're negative in the fact that I think they're bad or they should go away, but they're things that are gonna challenge us to be better. I think that we need to take those opportunities and understand where we fit in, how we deliver our great level of service and what they offer and how we work together, so to speak, or how we make that work. And there's a lot of things like online pharmacies or online food stores that you can offer to get into the online world. There's apps, there's a whole bunch of other things, but every one of them, as we said earlier, you gotta make sure that it's gonna forward what we are and what we're trying to accomplish better is not just the next shiny object, as you put it. The last one that we're all gonna be dealing with for a little bit is there is a noticeable shortage of veterinarians and licensed technicians. And so as more and more corporations and other groups are getting into this, 
and we're trying to expand the veterinary clinic as more and more people need us, we are going to have a shortage of highly skilled staff to, that we can find. And so one of the things we're going to have to do as an industry is get really good at understanding how to find these people. Well, at the same point, hopefully on a more global level, start figuring out how to get more people into these industries. Everyone's afraid these days of trying to hire or find a vet because there's so few of them out there and they're putting out ads and maybe getting one response over a month. And that's a very unique position to be in. I don't think we were there several years ago, but it's definitely the reality now. And with the growth of the vet industry and the current state of the staff available, I don't, I don't feel like that's going to swing back anytime soon. And staffs are always in a state of flux. Um, the team you have today will look different five, 10 years from now. And so you going out and trying to identify new talent is going to be a part of everyone's job going forward and in the future. It's just going to be a little bit of a harder one. And so having a really solid recruiting process that allows you to find qualified candidates and bring them in is going to be a key thing because otherwise you're going to be left with, oh, we, we actually found somebody. Let's just bring them in because we need a body at this point. And we have too much work for it. So I see that as being one of the big trends in the industry that people are having to deal with already. And it's not going to go away anytime soon. It's interesting the the staffing issue both on the the tech and veterinarian side you would think the the laws of supply and demand would push wages up because i think part of the challenge is the cost of education is so high and the wages coming out and the just the dollars and cents of how it works to you know pay to go to school come out and make x amount of dollars just sometimes doesn't make sense uh so the, those dynamics will have to shift. Is it going to be that the cost of education is going to move down? Is it the salaries and the, the income is going to move up? I don't know. And I don't, I don't think anyone knows exactly what that'll look like, but that's a very interesting dynamic that I certainly am, am curious to see how it plays out. I would agree. And to add something to it, I'm always seeing clinics because I, I look at a lot of the P&Ls for clinics. I'm always seeing staff wages rise a little bit. And as I'm watching that, Going back to the financial talk we had earlier, if I'm a business owner of a clinic, it's a lot easier for me to compete with some of the salary or fringe benefits if I have a 15% margin than if I have a 5% margin. So one of the things to kind of keep in mind with that too. Yeah, absolutely. So as we kind of wrap up and, and wind down a little bit, is there anything that I maybe haven't asked about that you think is really important to share that would make a a difference, uh, an impact kind of on the, the subject matter. And we've talked about a lot of different topics, but I know that you have a lot uh, of really good stuff to say. So I want to just give you the, the floor to address anything that you see out there. Let me, let me wrap into one other important one that we touched on a little bit indirectly, but never directly. And one of the other things I see a lot of clinics struggle with is being able to implement new ideas. And so if you look at a continuum of from the point where you have this great idea to the point where it's implemented, there's a lot of steps in between. There's a lot of legwork. And I see clinics who put in some of the legwork up front to get something in place or, or get some ideas together, maybe even launch it. But then as soon as they say, okay, we're going to do this, then they go on to the next thing. And I think there's a, an understanding of the process for rolling out new initiatives. That's really important to understand. And what I'd recommend for clinics is to kind of go through this thought process. First of all, if you have a new idea, make sure it's a good idea. Uh, I've seen owners who had great ideas in a back room and they came out and pronounced their new idea to the rest of the team 
two weeks later after buying the product and everything else like that. And the team knows it's a horrible idea. So one of the things I would say up front is make sure you're talking to people. Who are the influencers? Who do you trust on your team? Who are the other leaders or who are the other people that will give you a good opinion from different perspectives on an idea you have? Make sure it's a good idea and it works from everyone's perspective. And you don't, this is not a democracy. You're not taking a vote from everyone, but it's good just as a leader to understand how good is this idea or what are some of the pitfalls coming up with it. Next piece with that is once you made a decision on it, make sure that you train it well. Training is always an area that is kind of hard for clinics at times. And if you have something new, you don't want to do just a minimal training or try to train here and there. You want to do a good job. You're investing time in this. You're investing money in this. So ideally, you want it to work. And so with that, take the time to make sure people are adequately trained, stuff is installed and done well, and you have a nice, solid launch of a product or a service or whatever it turns out to be. Make sure everyone understands what their role is with it, how they do it correctly. Make sure they've had a chance to answer any questions they have. And this doesn't mean that it drags out for two or three months or anything like that, but you should be able to focus on one area specifically enough that you can take it from idea through to implementation in a relatively short time, but still do a good job of it. And then the key thing that everyone misses is once you launched it, you're not done, you're just beginning. And this is where that third area of the scorecard comes in for me. Any new initiatives we're doing, I want to track for the next six to 12 months at least. And I want to review the results with the staff. We need to come back every month and say, how is this coming? Do people like this? Is it still working out? Is there anything that's come up that's bad? Or is there any best practices we'd all benefit from? How's it going with that? And here's our numbers. Okay, we launched a new companion laser we want to use all the time. The numbers say that we've only used it twice in the last month. That's really important to know. And you got to understand what's happening with that so you can see and make tweaks down the road for the next two or three months to continue to refine it now that it's out in the wild, so to speak, and actually happening, you're going to learn a lot more at that point. So you need to be able to tweak it and adjust it to make it the best version of that possible. And so that month or two or three afterward of following up on things and really making sure that they're continuing to work and people that haven't just done it for three days and forgotten about it is the most important part of almost any product launch, in my opinion. And as you look at that, that's the part that's usually missing. Usually we're on to the next thing. And usually we don't know six months later that things didn't work out as well as we thought. And so I'd really encourage people to take time to go through a really well thought out and consistent process that includes the team, involves the training, and has the follow-up piece that really makes a launch happen so you can get the value out of something, not just do the legwork for it. Sage advice. And you can tell you're a very process-oriented person and um, having those built in really can make a difference in the ultimate outcome because it might be a good idea and it might be something that the team's on board with. But if you have no way of making sure once it's, you know, like you said, out in the wild that it's successful, uh, it can find a way to kind of just collect dust and no one really addresses it because it wasn't part of the, you know, what we've, the way we've always done it in the past. And you just kind of move back and gravitate towards what people have done prior. The last question that I'll well, I guess I have two, two different questions to end. So the, the first one being the one I ask everyone, which is, you know, how do you define success personally and then also professionally within your business? Well, let's start on the personal side. On the personal side for success for me is being able to have two things. First of all, a positive impact on my community. I, I love to help people. That's where I get a lot of my energy. And as much as I, I like to do on the professional side, and we'll talk about it in a second, 
on the personal side, it, it comes into all that nonprofit stuff that we talked about at the very beginning. So I like, I happen to be a, a school board chair and I, I work with an amazing school that's focused on helping at-risk youth, or high school dropouts, uh, find a path back to getting their diploma. And being able to help out groups like that or homeless groups or groups that are, are facing hunger shortages or um, any degree of poverty, I get so much energy out of trying to help those people out. And I love being able to give back to a community. That That's one piece that I love about the personal side of my life that I, I don't ever want to lose. The other piece, obviously, is my family. I have a 14-year-old son, and he is uh, he's growing up and entering high school, and my wife's a veterinarian, and I want to make sure we have a good family. And I love him very much. I, I definitely want to make sure that I am here and present and the type of person that they need for their lives. So that's the personal side. On the uh, business side, my goal is obviously always to help people. I think there's a lot of opportunity here as I continue to meet vets who are obviously trained at being great on the medical side, but have varying degrees of backgrounds or talent on the business side. I want to be able to help them get the businesses that they want. And I want to help them build great teams and have the processes so that they can enjoy their businesses and do whatever part of that they want. If they want to run the business, if they want to just be the doctor most of the time, I want them to realize their vision for their lives so that they can be happier and that their staffs and their clients can get the best care and relationships that they possibly can as well. And if I can help them achieve their goals, it kind of helps me achieve mine of just kind of helping this whole industry out. And so with that, down the road, I think there's opportunity on my team always to add more consultants, more people so we can reach more clients in different areas and really try to have that impact and help people accelerate their business and whatever that means for them, either with their staff or with their profits or just with how they organize things so they don't have to worry about the fires every day. And that's a lot of what I look for on the professional side. The perfect way to, to wrap it up. Last thing is for those listening, thinking, wow, I really want to connect with Jason, the team, learn more, follow your work, reach out. How best can they, you know, connect with you? Like where, where would you direct them or want to send them to, to reach? All of our contact information is on our website. And again, the name of the company is Coppins Business Strategies. Our website is uh, cb-strategies.com. So if you go there, you'll have contact information. Uh, my email address is jason at cb-strategies.com. My phone number is 616 437 9764. All this stuff is on the website as well. If anyone has questions about this or even just wants to sit down and talk for it about some of these areas, feel free to give me a call, shoot me an email, or come on the website and we can connect you with either myself or one of the other members on my team. Perfect. And I will link to all that Jason just spelled out in the show notes. That way you can find it as well if you're out and about and listening to the podcast. So, Jason, thank you so much for sharing all the knowledge that you have and I know that there's going to be so many good nuggets of information that people are going to take away from this recording. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. 
you should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.